0: Welcome to Impacting Jamaica, where we shine the spotlight on the many but often ignored positive happenings, activities, projects and investments at every level across every sector to inspire, motivate and excite people everywhere. Impacting Jamaica is powered by the Philip and Christine Gore Family Foundation. I am your host, Sinai flarry and in this episode, I will be speaking to an absolute living legend. He is a multi-award winning poet, writer, musician, sometimes troublemaker and professor. I'm so excited and delighted to be joined by the one and only Dr. Benjamin Zephaniah. Thank you so much.
1: It is a pleasure being here. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to our interaction.
0: Let's start right at the beginning in terms of like where you was born, where you was raised and what your childhood was like.
1: Well I was born in um, the city of Birmingham in the UK. Um, My mother is from St Elizabeth in Jamaica. My father is from Barbados. Um, But the part of Birmingham where I was born was um, very Jamaican. And so actually, I mean, really, the, my first memories were of like people um, from Jamaica, my uncles and aunties and the kind of wider family, um, Jamaican food shops varied by yam and all those things. But then the, the white community, I mean, what we called multiculturalism then um, was the local English, but a lot of Irish, Greek Cypriots, um, and gypsies, travelers, that used to come through Birmingham all the time. Um, And we were all poor. The interesting thing about when you're all poor is that you don't really envy anybody who's rich because you don't really see it. Yeah. You know, you think everybody's equally poor. You just get on with life. And there's something I really loved about that, you know. All my early toys, we made them. You know, we just made them. And if there was anything that mum or dad brought and it broke, we got it fixed. We didn't just throw it out and then order another one. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just um, loved that kind of uh, very earthy, practical way of growing up. You know, you reuse things, you recycle things, you make things work. When me and my brother wanted a bicycle, we got the frame, then we got the wheels, then we got the chain. <laughs> Literally, we just made a bike. Up, you know, yeah. and then our first business was in the back garden, fixing bikes. <laughs> and in those days, women didn't have these push chairs they have now. They have prams, big sturdy things, where the baby is looking back at you. And we used to fix those for the ladies, you know, just to earn a bit of pocket money. And then when they broke that they couldn't fix, we would then take the wheels and make a little go-kart. You know, we get a piece of wood and put it between the two and we use that like a little kind of car, but a little go-kart, you know. You
0: was actually doing the original cool run-ins there with the go-karts.
1: Yes, yeah, it was like that. It was really like that, you know? But yeah, I have such good memories of those times. Um, And um, yeah, they were very special. And that's one thing I really loved about the gypsy community, that they fix things and then they sit around the fire and read poems to each other Mm. and sing songs, you know? And although I hadn't at that point been to Jamaica, my mother used to tell me about how they used to sit around the, port, the, the veranda and sing and, you know, talk and things like that. And the gypsies used to do that. Mm. And they were quite outcast. So, yeah, I mean, when I was about eight years old, I was walking home one day and um, somebody came behind me on a bicycle and he had a brick. And he slapped me on the back of my head with the brick and said go home you black bastard and that's the first time my friends raised him you know they didn't throw the brick he slapped it you could imagine how hard that was mm. and i had to go home and i said to, and i couldn't understand what the guy said to me because when he said go home i said i'm going home you know mm. and then my mum explained to me that um well you know there's some people in this country that don't like us and mm. this kind of thing and Then I realised it wasn't all love and light. There was something else going on.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I mean, that experience at such a young age must have been really, really horrible and traumatic. And I mean, you mentioned your your mum and and your dad there um, being from different Caribbean islands. How did that dynamic play out um, in terms of your upbringing? What sort of impact did it have on you being from both Jamaican heritage and also Bayesian heritage as well?
1: Well... I didn't really know anybody Beijing. My father's my father was a bit a bit of a lone person. Um, I can't really remember meeting members of his family, so he just kind of was in with the Jamaicans, you know.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Um, it's a bit of a long story, but after a while, I separated from my father, and we we had a very um, not a very good relationship. Mm. But um, in those early days, he just got on with the Jamaicans. And the, the time when I realised it was different was anytime him and my mum would argue and she would call him small, small island this and small island that. And, and then he would you know, would say, you all these Jamaicans are criminals. and <laughs> And then I, I realised that they kind of, there was some difference. Mm. And then later on, my mom said to me that um, if she was in the the hometown where she come from, uh, marrying a Bajan would have been very unusual, oh. and um, some pop- people would have probably looked at it with suspicion. And definitely, vice versa, you know, Bajans marrying Jamaicans—it happened, happened, you know, it happened. It must have happened somewhere along the line but they always felt that it was much safer to do it in England than it would be in Jamaica or Barbados.
0: <laughs> I think there was that sense of a collective community amongst people who came from the West Indies, the Caribbean. Um, in those days, it was like, you know, we, we're all from the same region. They sort of clubbed together and really found a sense of community with one another.
1: Yes, I think that's true. I think, you know, when people newly come to a country, they want to stick together. And so the differences that may seem apparent, just kind of get overlooked because, you know, we're in this together kind of thing. Um, But there was, uh, that was their generation. With my generation, um, and I'm jumping a little bit forward now, but with my generation, the Jamaican culture was just so dominant that people from other islands kind of acted Jamaican, they walked Jamaican, <laughs> you know, that was a dominant culture. Reggae music was just so strong. I remember discovering that people like Dennis Boval, who was like this great dub producer, um, was Beijing. You know, um, the mad professor, I think he's from Guyana. <laughs> um, but, you know, they just loved the reggae culture, the Jamaican culture so much that, People just presumed they were Jamaicans, you know?
0: (laughs) Mm, mm, Absolutely. Now, I mean, let's touch on how you found poetry and how you discovered your incredible talent of having a way with words like nobody else in this country. Um, I understand at 13, um, you sort of finished your education. Was you you excluded or...? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I always smile when I hear that word "excluded" because back in the day we didn't say "excluded," we said "expelled."
0: Uh, expelled.
1: <laughs> um, yeah.
0: Talk, talk us through that period and how you how you found your way with words.
1: Well, my first encounters with poetry was my mother reading poems to me. She would never call herself a poet, but. She used to do the obvious things, which is like, you know, 30 days of September, April, June and November, all the rest of her, except for February, on the 28th this year, and 29 in each leap year. If you (laughs) wanted to remember something, she would give us a rhyme for it. And I remember some of my sisters, because in my house it was the woman that cooked. Um, And so my mother passed on recipes to my sister in rhyme. Right. And that's how she got them from her mother. And um, she would never call herself a poet, but that's what she did. And then of course there was, we we used to get these little um, recordings and some of them were comedy and some of them were poetry. Um, Bim and Bam, you ever heard of them? I
0: think they, they some some sort of memories.
1: Yeah, two Jamaican kind of stand-up, there were two, comics, but they would just come work off each other, you know, right, Um, quite funny. I remember getting those those tapes and and the family being very excited by them. And then, of course, Louise Bennett poets, uh, poems and um, and so and then all those songs and poems and rhymes, you know, Sammy plant pizza can donate. And you know, my mother and her family would sing them and I would say, what does he, what did he mean, Mum? Sami plant pizza can don't go. And then she would explain to me what it meant and I would think, I would always be looking for the meaning behind things, you know. So that's where my love of poetry comes from. And I always remember being fascinated by the rhythm, the way people speak. Now, I can understand some people thinking, you know, this is madness. We're my tart boats. It's just words, everybody uses words. But, you know, I'm a martial artist, right? We pra- I do kung fu. And one of the first things you really have to do when you do Kung Fu seriously, I'm not talking about breaking bricks and just these exhibitions. When you really want to learn Kung Fu deeply, you have to learn how to breathe properly. And again, most people will think, well, I'm breathing all the time. (laughs) Why are you teaching me how to breathe? But we teach you how to breathe in a very special way that you get energy and power without muscular power. You know, And the same thing we do with words when we're doing poetry. Everybody's using words all the time. But some, but some people are talking a lot and they're saying nothing. Mm-hmm. Right? We want to use words in a very special way that can say more than one thing at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know? So I love that. I love the way that you can say, I love you. 20 different ways and it has meanings. The difference between, you know, I love you and I love you and I love you, I mean just just three ways (laughs) and they're very different you know depending on the kind of force and the way you say behind the poem behind the words so I love that you know Um, and sometimes even my mother would tell me off she would you know she would say something like you know shut your out and go to bed and put your head put your your head on the pillow or something and i would say mommy that's so beautiful see it again <laughs> 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 um, so this love of playing with words was with me for a long time when i asked my mother now she says as soon as you started using words you loved playing with words so that was it for me and then my mother was very much into the church And when I looked at the Bible, I saw so much poetry in there. I used to love reading the Psalms because they had that kind of poetic nature to them. And I used to love listening to great preachers. Mm. I mean, there's a a stereotype, we know it. We see it in Britain, we see it in Jamaica, we see it in the United States, usually with black women who are great singers. And they say, well, it was in church, Mm. right? And it's a stereotype because it's true. You know, a lot of the sisters and brothers were in church, and they had to sing in the choir, and they found they had a talent for it. I looked the other way. I looked to the preacher, and I was watching the preacher, and I would watch the way they use repetition. And sometimes I gotta tell you, sometimes I didn't believe them, right? But I'm thinking, wow, you say it so convincingly. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) You just say it with such power and such conviction. And so I realized that um, that is also an element of poetry. And so I put those things together when I wanted to create poetry for myself. Mm -hmm. I really just wanted to, um, I mean, my first performance, I think was about the age of eight or something. And then about the age of 12 or 13, I popped up on a couple of sound systems, just little Playboy things. I don't mean play boy, I mean play things. I'm you know, not serious, but I just love rhyming on the sound systems. And then I started to take it more seriously. And I think what was a little bit different about me was that there I was in Hansworth and Aston in Birmingham, and everybody was mimicking the Jamaicans. They would literally talk about, yeah, Dali dawn a half, we are tree, go Buck and sun, spring, blah, blah. And I'm looking around me and I can't see Constance Spring, I can't see. So I started writing about life in Hansworth, you know, what was happening to us, yeah. the way we, we, we were being treated by the police. In those days, the National Front, the racist organisation started to um to kind of attack black people on the streets. And I started writing about those things. And um, toasting, seeing about those things. Now, then something happened, which, which only people of a certain age will remember in Britain. We used to have power cuts. Mm. Um, there were some big industrial strikes and every now and then we'd have power cuts. So we would be in a blues dance in a party and I would be on the mic and there would be a power cut. Now, if there's a power cut in, in one side of Birmingham, maybe the power is on the other side. So people get in their car and want to go over to the party to the blues on the other side of Birmingham. And I would say, no, 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 just stay here and just let me entertain you. Yeah. Right. So. You, know, you have to imagine like people come and they want to dance with their partner. They want to do their thing. They want to be cool. They didn't come to a variety show. You know what I mean? But I would say, listen, what's this? And I used to do my poetry. Mm. And I used to mix it up. I, at the time as well, I used to do impersonations, a little bit of impersonation. I could do Bob Marley right down to a T, you know, the movement, everything. And I could do Mick Jagger, right? So, <laughs> so I used to do <laughs> impersonate Bob Marley and Mick Jagger and mix it with poetry and just do like a stand-up show. Two, three o'clock in the morning, you know? <laughs> and, um, and then I realized, oh, you know, I can, I can do a show. Mm. Um, so that's, that's how it evolved for me and it got more serious when the politics got more serious.
0: Yeah.
1: And my poetry always had a reggae kind of rhythm, I didn't know about dub poetry. And then I heard about, the, the only person I knew was Miss Lou, mm-hmm. Louise Bennett, mm-hmm. and, but she was obviously of another generation, and then I heard of Linton. In London, Linton Freddie Johnson. Yeah. And then in Jamaica, I heard of Okwo Nora and um, Jean Breeze um, and these other Jamaican poets. And then I heard the term dub poet and I went, yeah, that's me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, uh, yeah, it was like I found my people. Yeah. But up until then, it was a very lonely world because everybody else was known for their toasted and I would come on the microphone and I could toast, you know, I could just live the life you love and love the life you live. My name is Ephaniah, and I come to make you higher or take you higher than the dub that you require, <laughs> you know? Um, but I wanted to slow it down and make people really listen to the words. And I was doing poems, At that time the, the issue of Nelson Mandela wasn't a big thing and I used to do poems about Nelson Mandela. People would come to me and they go, who is this Nelson Mandela? And then I would explain to them, you know? I used to do poems about um, all kinds of kind of political issues to do with Vietnam War and all these kind of things um, because I wanted to bring some intellectualism into the party if you like.
0: Yeah.
1: I don't say that in a pompous way but I wanted to do things that were more thoughtful not just about having a good time, having a good dance and having a nice woman.
0: Absolutely and I know that you you've done that in a way that nobody else has, um, especially in the UK. And I mean, you've gone on to do so much important work. I was on your website having a nosy, and Mm. I mean, we're talking about countless books, children's books. I've got one here that my son's just finished reading. Marvellous, absolutely marvellous. We're talking about, um, you know, children's books, Talking Turkeys. J is for Jamaica, all these incredible titles. We're talking about Terror Kids, we're talking about Refugee Boys, so many incredible books. And then of course, like your musical work has taken you around the world, your poetry has taken you around the world. And you mentioned like some of your most memorable places that you visited or that you've toured in are South Africa, Zimbabwe, and India and Pakistan. What was it about those places that stand out to you?
1: Well... Let me just explain that when, what happens with somebody like me, I'm born in inner city Birmingham, I'm growing up there. You start to get noticed and then companies start to pay for you to fly to places. Mm-hmm. Now, my peers, my contemporaries were like, um, Steel Pulse, UB40, um, Bujibanton. Banton. Mm-hmm. Sorry, not um, Buddy Banton, from Birmingham, Buddy Banton. <laughs> um, so you know the Birmingham Midlands people, musicians, right? Yes, Alexandra. Um, and they all wanted to make it in America. That that was their obsession. Wanted to break it in America. And I was like, no, I want to go the Southern Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I want to go Africa. I want to go India. I want to make it in China. <laughs> you know, that, that was me. I wanted to, you know, go down and perform for Aborigines. You know, I wanted to go back to the roots. I wasn't, I have never been crazy about chasing the American dollar. And every time I tour in America, people always say, well, why don't you do more here? You could, you could make more money here and all that stuff. And I go, oh, I don't mind going there and all that stuff but I love going to places where the oral tradition is strong Mm -hmm. and one of the things I love about performing um, I would include the Caribbean in this but India um, well let me say anywhere in Asia anywhere in Africa even down to places like Papua New Guinea places like this One of the things I love about them, and this is one of my tests, is when you tell somebody you're a poet, they don't say, oh, very good, darling, what have you had published? They say, well, do one for me, show me. (laughs) Because they are used to that tradition of performance poetry, you know? So that's, that's my main attraction. I love going to places where the oral tradition is still strong and where people who On the whole, to put it bluntly, I've suffered and will appreciate what I have to say.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I mean, last year, or the year before last, I was touring um, in South America. And um, people would, I mean, one of my mantras was that, you know, that I, I, I don't really, let me put it like this, I call the USA, the USA. I don't really call it America. There's a reason for that. It's because America is a continent. Mexicans are American. Colombians are American. You know, what we call the USA is actually just a part of North America. It's part of Canada, you know. When I say that, if I'm in Mexico or Colombia or Brazil and I say that, they go, wow. You know, because it's refreshing to them. They know that. Mm. But it's almost like the USA has hijacked the name America. So if I, if you know somebody from Brazil says I'm, I'm from America, they go, oh, no, you're not, you're from Brazil. Mm. Little things like that that connect you people, that make you um, make them feel that you care about them. That's what I like about working in these places. After the George Floyd killing um, in the United States, Um, You know, everybody knows there was ripples around the world. And I kept going on in Britain and saying that, hey, we must be careful because it happened here. You know, I don't know if you know, it happened to my cousin, right? And my cousin got killed by the police. The last thing he said was, I can't breathe. And then he cried for his mother, just like George Floyd. But it happened so much in Australia. And you got all these First Nation people in Australia saying, it's happening here. Don't forget us. All you people are struggling in the United States, struggling in Britain. Don't forget what's happening here. And that's what I like But It's a very long answer to your question, but when I go down there, I feel a sense of solidarity, culturally and politically and spiritually also, because those people understand, a lot of them, it's very, it's very difficult. You can't paint everybody with the same brush. How to be spiritual without being religious. You know, and that's something I like.
0: Yeah, yeah. and I mean, you touch on being spiritual and not being religious. And I know a big part of your life has been the Rastafari movement. If you can touch on that a bit and how you found Rastafari and what that whole era was like um, for you.
1: Well, so I'm living in England and my mother and my father, kind of want me to be a good Christian and be well behaved and they are investing everything in the bible and in Christian way of life and it's not that it's just Christian it's a very European idea of Christian I suggested once to my mother that you know Jesus could have been black and she was horrified she was absolutely horrified and this is a black woman you know and um and I knew the bible very well Um, to so this day, I have an obsession with the Bible, but an obsession that a lot of people find a little bit irritating because I'm interested in how it got put together. When was this written? When was that written? What language were they written in? Where did the Gospels come from? I love reading the Gospels that didn't make it in the Bible. They are fascinating. Jesus as a child playing with kids. It's fascinating stuff. It's, it's what I read every day. <laughs> um if i didn't um if i didn't do what i do and when i say this people say there's still time i would have gone to university and studied theology i'm fascinated with it Mm -hmm. but um so anyway so i'm growing up my parents wanted me, me to be one way and it's difficult because i don't really want to do exactly what they say but i still believe that one must have a kind of spiritual aspect to them. Um, To be honest, I mean, it came via the music. My hero, um, my musical hero was Big Youth. uh, And my kind of poetic hero was Bob Marley. And I say that because I mean, I loved Bob Marley a long time before he really got really popular. When I liked him as a young dread in Birmingham, he wasn't that much liked by the people around me. Mm. They was more into the rootsy thing. They saw Bob Marley as very commercial, but I used to listen to his words, you know, this morning I woke up in a curfew. Oh God, I was a prisoner too. Could not recognize the faces standing over me, all dressed in uniforms of brutality. How many rivers do we have to cross till we can talk to the boss? That's poetry, you don't, you don't need the music. Mm. So that's why I say he, he was like my poetic hero. Big youth now was the dreadlocks, dread, don't end the old of dread. In Birmingham, we actually had a place called the House of Dread, it was three houses that we knocked together. And we just lived in there and we shared food. It was like a commune, mm. we had bicycles, we didn't really use money unless we really had to, you know. And and what were we trying to do? Well, we were all trying to, and this is this really applies to me, to have a sense of spirituality, to have some community, but to also be political and understand the, re- the reality of what we are what we were living in, you know. Um it really frustrated me when people said, um, oh, you know, I don't deal with politics, so, you know, I mean, a very famous Jamaican poet who's no longer um, um, with us once said, um, and I'm just trying to remember a name, it'll come to me, But she said, um, if you don't deal with politics, politics will deal with you, Mm -hmm. you know, and and I loved, uh, there was an interview with Bob Marley where they asked him about why his music is so political, and he just didn't understand the question. He said you know it's not politics just my reality i'm just dealing with my reality so that's what i wanted to do like deal with the reality if you want to call it politics call it politics but i wanted to stop policemen hunting me down and picking me up because of the color of my skin i wanted to deal with the national front and the racist who for our listeners abroad is kind of like an english version of the ku klux klan mm-hmm. and um the way we were housing and the the conditions we lived in. But at the same time, I wanted to be spiritual. So to be spiritual and political, Rastafari did that for me, brought all those things together. So that was it for me. Um, And like I said, in, in, in Birmingham, we had this very strong sense of a Rasta community there. I mean, when Steel Pulse made the record, Handworth Revolution, It was very apt because it said a lot about handwork in that time um it was a very revolutionary place um so yeah
0: yeah i mean what what did your parents make of you finding rastafari you mentioned saying to your mum one day you know jesus could be black and she was horrified i mean what did they think of you you know taking a new spiritual and cultural path i
1: think at first they thought it would be like a phase i was going through I mean they, i think they felt that when i stopped eating meat too um but then they saw i was really serious um now i think it hit my mother when i mean my mother is somebody that you know walks around hugging the bible and it hit her when she realized that i knew the bible inside out more than her and literally she's got competitions and people would just name a chapter of the Bible, and I would just say it off the top of my head. I learned the Bible the way that Muslims learn the Quran. I used to be able to just quote it, chapter Mm -hmm. and verse. And so she realized it was something um, serious. Now, around the same time, things did start to go wrong for me, in one sense, that I started to get a little bit angry with society, and the police were picking me up all the time. So, you know, I got in trouble with the police. And, you know, I wanted to do good, but the society around me and the circumstances were p- pulling me to do bad. Um, but having said that, there's so many of my friends that didn't make it out. I mean, they literally are dead. Mm. And my mother saw that, you know, my poetry, um, call it my faith, if you like, call it my beliefs, um, actually, um grounded me they made me survive so so in a way it was um she saw the good and when she saw the other people were not surviving as well as me i'll tell you i mean there, we did a. Sh- I did a show a few years ago and my mother was in the audience and there was a time there's a time at the end of the show when you can take questions so one of my people around me said to my mother, why don't you ask him a question? You know, when you when the time comes, put your hand up and ask him a question. And she was like, um, okay, what do you want me to say? What should I say? And they were making suggestions. And one person said, why don't you ask him, when is he gonna get his hair cut? And my mother I went, know. no, we I would never ask him that, no, that is
0: a part of him.
1: That is, you know. Um, she
0: defended you
1: now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She turned around, you know. And it's really funny because I can remember when she was saying, you know, when are you going to cut your hair? You know what I mean? Um, and in fact, she just went, I'm going to ask him when is he going to find a wife? <laughs> <laughs> and she did. That's what she did, actually. Uh, <laughs> um, so, yeah, now, but you must understand that. There's seven of us, eight of us, actually, right? My father started to get violent towards my mother. My mother had to run for her life. Anytime my father used to beat my mother, I used to go and fight my father. All the other kids used to run away. I used to run, I used to try and fight him. The first time I ever went to a police station, it was for stabbing my own father. But he was just about to kill my mother. You know, well, that's what I thought at the time. I thought, well, if I don't stop him, he's going to kill my mother. So he had her on the ground and he was beating her. I got on top of him and I got a little knife. They cost six pence, little baby stupid knife. And I started to try to stab my father and it was useless. The knife kept folding back and cutting me. But when the police arrived, now you remember, this is the 70s. When the police arrived, my father just said, it's my wife. And the police said, oh, it's a domestic. We're not going to bother with that then. And they arrested me. Wow. They arrested me, the little boy.
0: How old was you at that time when, when that happened?
1: I was nine or ten or something like this.
0: Wow.
1: You know? Um, so, me and my mother, we never actually slept on the street, but we were very close to sleeping on the streets. We used to literally knock on people's door and say, you have a room for tonight? And, you know, that's what we did. So, um, me and my mum are very close.
0: Um,
1: I've got a twin sister. Okay. I'm a twin, I have a twin sister. My mum had two lots of twins. There's another set of twins as well. And then there's the other girls in the family. And when people see us together, they can't understand why me and my mum are the closest rather than the girls. Why? because I've seen her suffer I've seen her homeless I've seen her on the streets and when I talk about these things in public um, sometimes my other sisters and brothers complain you know mm-hmm. and I say, well people want to know about me people want to know what makes me who I am so I have to talk about these things and one day I said to my mother I said mother am I exaggerating you know is it a, is it a case of me repeating this story so often that I start to exaggerate and and she says, Son, what you saw is absolutely correct. He said, What you don't know is what you didn't see was even worse. And I was, My gosh. Oh. You know, so they was worse than what I saw. She said, Yeah. Mm. And she said something to me the other day, which really blew me away. You know, and I, I got no problem talking about these things mm. because I want people to understand men who are violent towards women or whatever, and people who are having problems, women who are having problems with men, to understand these stories that, that, you know, are really true. My mother said to me the other day, she says, son, have you ever beaten me? I said, what kind of a question is that? Um, what kind of a question is that for a mother to ask a son? I said, why did you ask me that? And she and she was reminiscing and she said one day my father picked me up and threw me against the wall when i was trying to save her he was having about my mother and he threw me against the wall. and um he pointed to me and said one day that boy will grow up and beat you that's what he said to my mother mm. and my mother kind of smiled and went you see we proved him wrong yeah
0: no.
1: And I thought, what a strange thing to do. But I understand, you know, my mother's now 87, so she's reminiscing about her life and thinking, you know, going back. Mm-hmm. And sometimes she just calls me and she'll go, you know, Benjamin, you know, me and you, me and you, we were the ones that were together. We saw things that the others didn't see. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, it's, I'm I, beginning to appreciate it more now. Uh, um, maybe because she is, and she's talking to me in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so there you go. I don't know how you got into this subject. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry.
0: But, you know, I, I appreciate you being so open and about, you know, also as well as sharing, you know, the good parts of your childhood, being so open and so frank about the parts that weren't so nice for you. Um,
1: this has been but, an obsession of mine
0: yeah. telling
1: the truth, especially as men. You know, we have to talk about the way we relate to ourselves, the way we relate to our parents, especially the way we relate to our women. Stop keeping things boxed up, stop thinking that we have to do things in a particular way because it was done that way. You know, I had an attitude towards women at one point myself. Mm. And then I thought, I'm following my father. I had to stop. Mm. I had to stop. Yeah. So when we say Black Lives Matter, Right, we don't say to white people that you're all evil. We say that you have some privilege in their thinking. You have to understand when you when you are using those privileges, when people don't have access to all these things, these black people. So you have to understand that. Mm-hmm. And therefore you can start to think consciously and how to change your behavior. Or the same thing applies to men. Mm-hmm. You know, if we've been holding women down and you know, we've been in positions of male privilege, then we have to check ourselves and say, right, you know, i got to have a, a different relationship with, with the women around me. That's not a sign of
0: weakness. That's a sign of strength.
1: That's a sign of unity.
0: Impacting Jamaica is powered by the Philip and Christine Gore Family Foundation. If you or anyone you know is involved with projects and activities that excite, motivate, and encourage, send us an email at impactingjamaica at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.